Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How do you say to your child in the night? Nothing's all black, but then nothing's all white. How do you say it will all be all right? When you know that it mightn't be true, what do you do? Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Ben Francis, who is the author of a very compelling new book entitled Careful the Spell You Cast, How Stephen Sondheim Extended the Range of the American Musical. Careful the things you say, children will listen. Careful the things you do, children will sing and learn. Children may not obey, but children will listen. Children will look to you. Sondheim is without a doubt one of the most studied, examined, and analyzed Broadway songwriters of all time. In fact, we've done quite a bit of that right here on Broadway Nation. However, as you will hear in his book and in this interview, Ben Francis contends that in spite of all of that investigation, Sondheim continues to be very misunderstood. He's often labeled as being cynical and pessimistic, but Francis instead argues that Sondheim firmly belongs in the Broadway aspirational tradition, a tradition that celebrates dreams of a better life, and that Sondheim's musicals are a continuation of the work of his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein. Ben Francis's other works include contributions to the Oxford Handbook of Sondheim Studies, the Oxford Handbook of British Musicals, and the Oxford Handbook of Shakespeare and Music, as well as Christopher Hampton, Dramatic Ironist. As always, this episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our Broadway Nation Patron Club members, including our newest members, Andy Wigington and Mark Stanton. 
If you would like to help support the work of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. Welcome, Ben Francis, to Broadway Nation. It's so great to have you here to talk about your new book, Careful, the Spell You Cast, How Stephen Sondheim Extended the Range of the American Musical. Thank you. First thing I want to say is I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I found it very captivating and quite hard to put down, which surprised me because there are a lot of Sondheim books out right now, and Mm -hmm. I've read most of them. And you think, well, what else is there to say? And of course, with (laughs) someone, you know, whose work is so rich and deep, there's still a lot to say. But this book I found really remarkable because your level of research, your level of analysis, really, it's really a book of analysis, which I loved, and not so much a book of opinion, not that I'm not interested in your opinion, but I really appreciate that this book was not about what you think about Sondheim, but what you found in his work, mm-hmm. what, yeah. what you have revealed and discovered there. And mm-hmm. I found it a revelation in the best way because it's that kind of thing where you reveal something And people who are immersed in this world then get a chance, like I did so many times during the book, to go, oh, I knew that, but I never put that all together that way. Or now (laughs) I see something that I should have seen before. How stupid could I be not to have seen that? (laughs) So how did this come about? How are you able to view this work? And you cover virtually his entire canon. Mm-hmm. How were you able to wrap your mind around all of that at the same time and immerse yourself in it so completely? Well, it was a PhD thesis to start with. Uh, I did it at Goldsmiths College. And my tutor was Professor Robert Gordon, who actually edited, or he and Olaf Dubin edited the Oxford Handbook of Sondheim Studies. And there's a essay of mine in there on Into the Woods. Originally, I'd I'd done an MA in musical theatre there, which included actually sort of co-writing a show of my own. But I wanted to sort of just extend that. The thing was, there's a lot of writing about Sondheim, but I thought there were a lot of things that people weren't saying about it. I think one of the things that actually annoyed me in a lot of writing about Sondheim is that they seem to want to make him kind of academically respectable. And by doing that, they're making him that he was cynical, that he was subverting the American musical. And I, I thought, well, he's not subverting it but he is kind of recognizing that life isn't always like that which i think is a much more sort of mature attitude and so that's how i got started in that i mean it was originally going to be about sondheim and disillusionment was the sort of the original pitch for the phd and then i thought well disillusionment is there but also kind of coming back from that I found that very refreshing. And also the whole tone of the book, even though it started as a PhD dissertation, it's incredibly accomplished and knowledgeable, but it doesn't feel academic. It feels very accessible. And it's not pretentious in any way, which I I really enjoyed about it. Oh, thank you. Yes. Well, a lot of academics, academic criticism is very good at understanding structure. But it's not always very good at getting tone. So that mm-hmm. they'll look at like a light comedy and a tragedy and they'll see that there might be an underlying plot structure that's similar. But they sort of seem to forget that, you know, the, the way that audiences actually take it. Or there's an elaborate set of theories called reception theory, which is about how audiences respond to shows. And I think, well, aren't you ever in an audience yourself? <laughs> you know, <I> think- <laughs> Exactly. Uh, often they, they, they kind of miss that. I'm totally with you there. I think that's the thing is to start with the shows and try not to have any preconceived notions of what they're about, but just start with the shows and see what's 
they say to you. And rather than discussing Sondheim's musicals chronologically, which is the way most books would approach it, you've organized your book around his eight principal collaborators Mm -hmm. with a chapter devoted to each one of them and the multiple shows he wrote with each of them in that chapter. Why did you decide to take that format? Well, the thesis is in chronological order. And it was actually my editor, Dom O'Hanlon, suggested putting it in with the collaborators. And I wasn't sure at first because I thought, well, well, I'm going to be jumping around a lot. And then I thought it actually makes more sense because collaborators about what he chooses to do, whereas chronology is more about what sort of what happens to happen. Whereas if his collaborators, it's, it's who he works with and why he works with them. Exactly. The trouble is, of course, I mean, I acknowledge in the foreword that you don't always know who was responsible for what. And they often don't remember because, you know, it's all happening with this kind of hectic things are happening all at once. So you have to acknowledge that they're kind of a hydra-headed entity, as it were, you know. Anyone who's ever written the show under understands that very clearly. There's very little separation, even though especially academics want to separate the elements so much when you read about shows from the past. It's as if the composer and the lyricist and the book writer never met each other. You know, mm-hmm. and- I mean, In the very early days, I think they didn't. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Back in what I call the Silver Age, there were times where they were writing completely separately and then somebody had to stitch it all together. But I know that from reading about Sondheim and hearing him speak, he would spend weeks and months and years maybe talking about the show before, and then Rogers and Hammerstein did the exact same thing, before they ever sat down to write anything. The very first sentence of your book refers to what you just spoke about a minute ago, disillusionment. It quotes a lyric from Merrily We Roll Along that says, it's letting go your illusions and don't confuse them with dreams. And you tell us that that is an idea that Sondheim dramatizes in almost all of his shows. Contrary to popular belief, this point of view is not actually cynical. It's really romantic. Yes. Put that together for us. Well, that's why I start with really talking about Oscar Hammerstein, because, of course, Hammerstein was Sondheim's mentor. You know, the famous story of them meeting when Sondheim was 15 and uh, Hammerstein saying, well, the show you've written is terrible, but it's not untalented. You know? right. And giving him a, a whole sort of afternoon of how to put shows together. Sondheim is somebody, I mean, I also quote Flaubert, because, again, there's a similar kind of thing. Of the, Flaubert was called a realist writer. He's anti romantic. No, I'm a rabid old romantic. It was somebody who wanted to believe that, you know, the world was the way Madame Bovary wanted it to be, but also recognized it wasn't. I think that's the thing of letting go your illusions, the things that actually blind you to the world, blind you to life. But hold on to the dream, the thing that you want to do that gives your life meaning. A lot of his characters have the wrong dream because it's not a dream about belonging to the world. I mean, like, you know, Madame Rose has a dream of being a star and just like pushing everyone else off stage. And when she can't live that dream, she makes poor Louise go through hell, basically. So you've got this sort of difference between the illusion, the thing that will blind you, Sally's obsession with Ben in Follies. Mrs. Lovett falling in love with Sweeney but never being able to say it and not really seeing that to him she's just a convenience. Their dreams do not line up. That's right. And that's the important thing is to sort of to let go of the illusions, to not let yourself live a kind of false life, but also not to give in, not to become cynical. I mean, the example of a cynical show is Candor and Ebb's Chicago. Everything's an act. Everyone's a phony. You can kill people, get away with it. Everything is put on. I mean, I think that a lot of that is to do with Bob Fosse. Absolutely. Brilliant. <laughs> 
cynical, dark kind of person who just sort of loved and hated showbiz in equal measure. I think there's this kind of similar ambivalence to Sondheim. I mean, some of his characters can get away from their illusions, can actually live a meaningful life. So in a way, he's a lot less cynical than a lot of other shows. I think that's a fantastic image of comparing Sondheim to Fosse. Fosse really is a cynic with maybe just a little touch of romanticism buried in there somewhere. But Sondheim, I love the sentence that you wrote in your book, only a romantic has dreams that can be destroyed. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Sondheim. Yeah. I probably was Foss, yes. I think his dreams were destroyed. You know, you see all that jazz and just get the feeling he's just trapped in this cycle of womanizing booze. <laughs> and yet he still believes in show business somehow, even though he ruthlessly criticizes it. Well, and yes. I think that ties into something you say in your book about the idea of a musical being inherently hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just agree. I think I think musicals are sort of inherently hopeful. It's like what Harold Prince said about Cabaret, and the title song is actually quite ironic because she's actually decided to have an abortion during it, this sort of life-affirming song. But he says, you know, often the music tends to override that and people just go with the emotion and go with the sort of roller coaster of the sort of, the irony gets sort of rather swamped. I think I think it's probably less so with Sondheim. The songs that you can sing straight, like in Buddy's Eyes from Follies, it's a song you could sing it straight. You know, you could have a woman singing that to a man as a sort of a love duet. But it, it, it's the placing in the show because she's not singing it to her husband. She's singing it to the lover or the would-be lover who dumped her 30 years ago to, to get the needle in it. But the placing is ironic. And in a way, the same with our time at the end of Merrily, because you've got, you know, this very hopeful song. And it is a hopeful song. The placing in the show shows that two out of three of those people will not get their dreams and will screw their lives up completely. But at the same time, you've got one person who does manage to hold on to their dreams. And also, it's not that the dreams themselves are bad. It's that people don't hold on to them. They become cynical. And he comes around and bites them in the arse. Well, I mean, Mary has a dream of Frank that is never going to happen. Frank has a dream of success that's completely spurious. And that destroys them. And right at the top of the book, you quote Sondheim saying, if you want to look for themes in my shows, I often write about the difficulties of maintaining idealism. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, I think a lot of people hadn't picked that up, even though he actually said that. But there was this sort of thing that Sondheim is cynical. I mean, there was that piece by John Lahr back in mm-hmm. the 70s where he just sort of was making out he was this cynic who was spoiling the fun of the musical. <laughs> He'd seen the original production of Company, but I mean, you know, I remember seeing that revival they did in London with Clive Rowe and uh, Adrian Lester. You know, there was people actually applauding in the middle of Getting Married Today. They couldn't even wait for the end of the song. So, so, I mean, there's that kind of huge lift, that rush of emotion. And, you know, so I think, well, this, this isn't a cynical drag kind of show. In the course I teach at the University of Washington, I have the students read Company and listen to it. One of my favorite days is the day we discuss Company, and I make them vote on whether the show is pro-marriage or anti-marriage. It's a fascinating discussion because most of them start off saying that the show is anti-marriage, and then the more we talk about it, you follow a similar pattern in your book the characters all stay together. Nobody mm-hmm. gets divorced in that book. Even the couple that gets divorced stays together. That's right. And, yeah. Which is not how it is in Allegro. People think, oh, you know, Hammerstein, oh, he's corny. But it's actually, you know, you've got that marriage in Allegro and that goes completely wrong. Yeah. And, you know, she was like his childhood sweetheart. And you think that can't go wrong, not in a Hammerstein show, but it does. That's probably one of the reasons why the show never really hit an audience because, you know, people weren't expecting something that kind of bleak. Exactly. Tying into what we were just talking about a moment ago, the 
you made a statement that I really connected to, which is the Broadway musical is aspirational. It celebrates dreams of a better life. And again, people may say, oh, that's true, but not Sondheim. But you see his work as fitting right into that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, that's why I said he extended the range of the American musical. He shows these dreams going wrong or they can go wrong. But in the end, it's always the aspirational characters, George or a dot in Sunday in the Park with George or the baker in Into the Woods, even Fosca in a way, in Passion. It's the aspirational characters who come through and then the ones who blow their dreams, you know, the Addison Meisner or, or Franklin Shepard, the ones who don't stick to it, always go wrong. I think it was Sam Mendes said to Sondheim, well, you know, Merrily We Roll Along is basically uh, that you're trying to fix the second act of Allegro. Allegro is about a man who's getting all these important appointments and he's not actually practicing medicine, which of course is a doctor, is what you want to do. And sometimes said, well, the difference is, of course, that Hammerstein redeems his hero, whereas Kaufman, Hartfirth and Sondheim leave him sinking in the hell he has created. <laughs> Again, that's because he is expedient. It's expediency and not having a dream is always what's wrong in Sondheim. I mean, it also happens in Pacific Overtures. In Pacific Overtures, you've got that song, A Bowler Hat. And there it's somebody who's just selling out their own personality. He just says, one must accommodate the times as one lives them. That is just somebody who just doesn't care anymore. That is somebody who's empty, who hasn't got a dream. It's like Oscar Hammerstein saying, you've got to have a dream. And Sondheim would go along with that. He's saying, yes, the right one, not a mad illusion, <laughs> but yes, you've got to have a dream. I mean, it's in Emerson, you know, hitch your wagon to a star. It, it is very much part of the American experience. Some people can be content, play and bingo and pay and rent. That's peachy for some people, for some humdrum people to be. But some people ain't me. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back after this quick break. I had a dream, a wonderful dream, Papa. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. 
That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What you just identified is that even though Sondheim works with these seven different book writers, so many of the themes cross over and reappear and reoccur in each of these shows. And you have done such a great job of connecting those threads for us and sort of pointing out that so many of the shows are a cautionary tale, really. What Sondheim is telling us is don't do this. Don't Mm -hmm. make this mistake, which Mm -hmm. is somebody with a positive intent, somebody who actually wants to protect us, wants to keep us from going down the wrong roads. I think that's true. One of the things, of course, about Sondheim is he didn't have to do a lot of hack work. After West Side, he was pretty much financially independent. So, I mean, like with a lot of writers, you know, they've just got to go where they're being offered a job. He could choose his own subjects, but it was that kind of thing, the dangers of expediency, the dangers of cynicism or conversely of illusion, of deluding yourself, obviously just fascinated him. I mean, I I don't try and do any sort of uh, long distance analysis, but there's no secret that he and his mother had a a difficult relationship. And I think he saw there somebody who was in the grip of a kind of, I mean, she was a social climber. That's pretty well known. That's why she liked Oscar Hammerstein because he was successful. You know, he saw people in the grip of this sort of just where the success in purely material terms was what mattered. He was sort of rebelling against that. People who think that way in Sondheim never succeed. Something always goes wrong for them. Something sometimes goes wrong for the people who've got the ideals, but that's life. That's what I say in in Evening Primrose. You've got these two people who want to get away and they fall in love and they try and get away and they don't. Partly because the man is stupid and doesn't realise until too late what dangers he's in. And again there, it's this kind of Rodgers and Hammerstein thing of the man is very controlling. You know, I'm the man, I make the decisions, I'm stronger and wiser. But it's actually the woman who knows, who's got this kind of knowledge of what's actually going on. And it's the woman who wants to connect to the world. I mean, that's the song, Take Me to the World. Take me to the world that's real. Show me how it's done Teach me how to laugh To feel Move me to the sun Sondheim never has that thing that a lot of songwriters would have. Lorenz Hart was always doing it, the blue room, the small hotel, the little place away from the world where we can just be ourselves. Sondheim never has that. It's always take me to the world. You want to belong to the world and integrate with it. Let me see the world. I have seen That's the free. world. Show me how it's done. And it's mean and ugly. Teach me how to laugh. We could laugh together. Move me to the sun. Stay here. You'll hold my hand. I love you. Let it be a world. 
That's really fascinating. I think it's important because it's he's somebody who didn't like sort of fantasy in a kind of clinical sense or, you know, sort of withdrawing from the world. That's always, you know, death. That's the end of it. So we talked about some of these recurring themes and subject matter that cross over among the shows. Selling Out was one you mentioned a moment ago, Disillusionment. Some of the others you identify in the book, Time as an Enemy. Time certainly mm-hmm. is at the center of Follies, but not just Follies. Yeah, certainly. Time is always, I mean, in um, Pacific Overtures, you've got a sense of everything is being worn away. The advantages are floating in the middle of the sea. But then at the end, you suddenly jump 100 years and everything is horrible. You know, it's pollution and plastic and you know not that you know japan of the old days was perfect but it did at least sort of work as a society and now it just seems to be trying to imitate america Yeah, all the way through the sort of the idea of, of trying to hold time, stop time, and all the way through Sweeney Todd. There's this kind of appeal of the sort of romantic idea like Edgar Allan Poe of sort of, you know, in the grave, nothing can be contaminated anymore. You know, time has stopped. But of course, Sondheim is showing that that doesn't work, that you can't just sort of stop time by making somebody into an ideal. And that if you try to do that, if you think, well, I can be cruel and vicious in everyday life, but it's all right because I've got a dream. It doesn't work. Time keeps sort of cropping up as a sort of eradicating beauty and the idea of beauty dying. It does come in, in a lot of his shows, I mean, of course, and in Sunday. And Sunday is the sort of one where you can stand against it. There you've got another jump from 100 years. In this one, although the modern art world is is pretty shallow, by holding on to tradition, by holding on to the past, you can kind of eradicate this sense that sort of everything is changing. I see towers where there were trees, as George's mother sings, and she doesn't like what's happening to the world. La Grange Jatte is being torn down. And then you go to it in Act Two, a hundred years later, and that little island, you know, it's got this one tree left. But at the same time, art does fix it. That was the first show he did with Lapine. And that was the show where there's a whole community able to join together in a way that hadn't really happened. I mean, you get a whole community in Sweeney Todd, but they're all kind of, they're all just out to get each other. Right got a whole community joining together even it is just in a painting there's this idea of art holding on to time i mean that's why i started that with a quotation from william faulkner that a piece of art is something that if you look at it 100 years later it's still alive it's something that moves because it has life and i thought you know i couldn't resist that as a quote because it's a hundred year jump again it's, it's successfully jumped in and sunday Let's briefly talk through each of these chapters or each of the collaborators as we go. You vaguely put them in chronological order in terms of who he works with in the order he works with them. But then, of course, he goes back to some of them. Yeah. He doesn't just stick with one and then go to the next. They're trading off along the way. Yeah. So I just had to go with their first collaboration. Exactly. Which perfectly makes sense. So talk about Arthur Lawrence. Lawrence was actually the one who got him into West Side Story. Raymond Knapp said that in all of the Lawrence Sondheim shows, there is a couple people who are trying to escape from the pressures of society, which, of course, is the opposite in a way of, of what happens in Lapine's work. 
Like in West Side Story, Tony and Maria don't dream of having a little place all to themselves. They dream of a society where there is no fighting. A whole other world. I mean, that's still a fantasy, but it's it's a perfectly legitimate one. Right. <laughs> and of course, the well sort of crushes them again. Whereas with Gypsy, you've got Louise who has in the end to get away from her mother, although they have a kind of reconciliation. And in Anyone Can Whistle, you've, you've got this town that's selling a phony miracle and Hapgood and Faye are standing up against that. She's trying to sort of to lower her guard as she sings, which is also what happens in Do I Hear a Waltz? You've got a woman who can't really give emotionally. It's that sort of difficulty of, of giving emotionally, which again was sort of unusual for a musical because you have an orchestra backing you up people so often can just say what they mean of course with with hammerstein i mean with the bench scene when billy and julia are talking they lie no i don't love you but when they sing they're actually saying what they really mean or at least they're not lying and so the audience can get that they are really in love Whereas I think the thing with Lorenz is they are sort of rather more satirical. They're more about the dangers of conformity, which certainly anyone can whistle. But I think all the others are about sort of the world trying to press you into its mould and fighting against that. I think Gypsy is the best book from those four because it's so ambivalent. Kind of admire Rose because she has got determination. She's also funny. You understand that, you know, she's being oppressed by this world. You know, her father's saying, you're just meant to stay here, girl, not go out there and have any fancy dreams. And that's kind of like blasphemy in the musical theatre. And so you, you respect her anyway for standing up to him, even though she steals his retirement plaque and sells it. But there's this ambivalence. But dream of being a star is not of being in the world, really. And that is actually, you know, it is quite destructive. Rose really, like a lot of stars, or at least a lot of people who want to be stars, really rather despises the audience. And, you know, that's peachy for some humdrum people to be, but some people ain't me. That's a strange thing in the, in the, in the way Rose actually like tells the audience, well, you're all really boring. But I'm not. And yet the audiences love her because it's what Sana says. She has no self-censorship. She's just like somebody who can just say anything. Although she lies, she doesn't hide anything. <laughs> you know, she can lie through her teeth, but she's so nakedly determined to get what she wants. You know her completely. We all want a piece of that. We all want to have some of that in our life. We'd like to have at <laughs> well, least a it. little I bit think... of her moxie on some days, <laughs> which is what makes her so appealing and yet so horrifying. I mean, that's what's so amazing that's about it, that yes. show is we love her and are horrified by her at the same time. And that kind of ambivalence is all the way through Sonheim's work. Stephen Banfield talks about his antinomial genius, a way of feeling opposite emotions at the same time. Certainly Rose is the first one where you just feel, you know, this one's awful, but I'd rather like her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's that famous phrase about being able to hold two opposite opinions at the same time? As oh, yeah, Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, yes. Yeah. An artist is somebody who can hold two opposite opinions and still continue to function. That's what you're talking about here. And in mm -hmm. a way, I think that is why his shows are challenging for some audiences is because you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to hate mm -hmm. Rose and love Rose at the same time mm -hmm. to really be captivated by Gypsy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Or Sweeney Todd certainly is a spin-off of Gypsy in some ways, as I see it, <laughs> taken to the ultimate extreme. But again, characters that we completely identify with and are completely horrified by what they do. Especially Mrs. Lovett. I mean, exactly. Sweeney at least has revenge as an excuse. Mrs. Lovett yeah. doesn't. The only 
good thing she's got in a way. She does love Sweeney. I mean, because I rejected the idea that she represents capitalism because she does have this dream of Sweeney because she doesn't sell his razors. Right. Cracked in the head, wasn't I? I could have got five, maybe ten quid for him. But she doesn't because that's her dream. But it's the razors that then, of course, Signor Pirelli recognises. So that's why Sweeney has to kill him. And so that brings on everything. Because she's held on to this dream, she actually kills them both. Her yeah. love is her downfall. Ultimately. That's right, yeah. And that's the thing. So A lot of people say that, you know, oh, it's ironic. But listen to the music. At the end, when she confronts him, you've got this kind of ironic duet which happens a lot again in Sondheim, a duet of two people who actually aren't connecting or aren't communicating. She's singing, I love you. The only time in the show she goes into a kind of operatic register and sings, I love you, I'd be twice our wife for you. And she really kind of hurls her heart out at him. And he doesn't take any notice. (laughs) He's too busy cradling Lucy. And then when he turns to me, he says, love it. It's back to this bouncy tune, sort of, come here, my love. And then he just throws her in the oven. No compunction about her at all. I mean, he accepts his death at the hands of Toby I think because he realizes he kind of he's asked for it, but he doesn't have any compunction about poor old Mrs. Lover. Yeah, he actually sees himself at the end of the show. He sees who he is and what he's done. Yeah, that's it. So if he doesn't achieve redemption, and it specifies at the end when you you see them come back from the dead, but then they walk off in separate directions. It's very specific that there's no reconciliation for them. It's quite horrific. I mean, even with Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, Billy Bigelow is a pretty nasty piece of work. He slaps poor old Julia around. But you can like him because he redeems himself. He recognises that he's wrong. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, again, he's sometimes extending what Hammerstein did. I mean, he said that Hammerstein was very experimental. I mean, he was an innovator. Sondheim did recognise that sometimes some of Hammerstein's characterization was pretty one-dimensional. Some of the supporting characters are just kind of like gag characters. But at the same time, the way he put stories together and made them work and made shows about characters and their decisions, which before Showboat, they just weren't really there at all. Again, that, that ambivalence, even in Showboat, I mean, basically, a thing of a Gaylord is a complete idiot. In fact, that one's a bit hard to take because he does seem to be redeemed rather easily. But even there, Hammerstein was quite critical of the character. He didn't worry too much about making the character lovable. And you quote Sondheim as comparing Hammerstein to Peter Brook at one point, which I thought was remarkable. And that's because of his view of Hammerstein as this innovative theater maker. That's it. He also compared it to Eugene O'Neill, saying that often their theatrical imagination exceeded their linguistic imagination. Sometimes the language might be flat or simplistic, but there was so much intensity in the way the characters were imagined and the way that shows were put together. So the song and character, I mean, now, because often the fate of people who are innovative uh, people see Oklahoma and think well of course that's how you do a show they come on they sing what they're feeling about and then they explain things and then that they further the plot well what's so innovative about that well look at all the shows before that <laughs> exactly it was a revolution on the next episode of Broadway Nation Ben Francis and I will continue our conversation about his new book Careful the Spell You Cast How Stephen Sondheim Extended the Range of the Broadway Musical alright now you know Life is crummy, well now you know. I mean, big surprise, people love you and tell you lies. Bricks can tumble from clear blue skies. Put your dimple down, now you know. So life lays you low, learn to live with it, now you know. It's called flowers wilt, it's called apples rot, it's called thieves get rich and saints get shot. It's called God don't answer prayers a lot, okay now you know. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. 
Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, now you know. Now forget it, don't fall apart at the seams. It's called letting go your illusions, and don't confuse them with dreams if the going slow. Don't regret it, and don't let's go to extremes. It's called what's your choice, it's called count to ten It's called burn your bridges, start again You should burn them every now and then Or you'll never grow Because now you grow That's the killer, is now you grow You're right, nothing's fair And it's all a plot And tomorrow doesn't look too hot Well, you better look at what you've got And enjoy the show Okay, now you know Here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Just go with the flow. And forget it, don't fall apart at the seams. It's called letting go your illusions. And don't confuse them with dreams if they're going slow. Don't regret it and don't let's go to extremes. I mean, socks have holes, I mean, roads have bumps, they make meatheads champs, nice guys chumps, I mean, even cream of wheat has lumps, gotta let it go. Because now you grow, that's the killer, is now you grow, now you grow. You're right, nothing's fair, and it's all a plot, and tomorrow doesn't look too hot, right? You better look at what you've got over here. Hello! Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.